Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. It is budget season in Washington, D.C., and this year, like last year, the White House has requested massive cuts to foreign affairs spending in general and to the United Nations in particular. The fiscal year 2019 budget request from the White House asks for about a 30% overall cut in non-military international affairs spending. Congress, however, which ultimately controls the purse strings, has largely pushed back against some of these more draconian spending proposals. On the line with me to discuss how the United Nations fits into the U.S. budget and spending debates currently ongoing in Washington, D.C. is Peter Yeo. He is president of the Better World Campaign and vice president for public policy and advocacy at the United Nations Foundation. He was a longtime congressional staffer and knows the ins and outs of the foreign affairs budget and the UN budget process, as well as anyone in D.C. And he does a good job of explaining how American funding for the United Nations ends up being a pretty good deal for the United States. This is a good explanatory episode about one of the more important financial relationships in the world. That is how the United States helps fund the United Nations and what the United States gets in return for its funding. Before we begin, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who is leaving reviews of the show on iTunes. Uh, it really does help increase where the podcast ends up in search rankings among people who are looking for foreign policy podcasts. So thank you for leaving a review. You are helping to grow the audience and make this enterprise more sustainable. And frankly, I also love reading your, your kind words. Uh, I appreciate that kind of positive reinforcement. And one more thing before we begin, as you all know, I am the editor of UN Dispatch. UN Dispatch is supported by the Better World Campaign. I have known Peter for years. He is my go-to expert on all things related to US-UN relations, uh, but I just did want to uh, flag that disclosure. And now here is my conversation with Peter Yeo. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, what's most unusual about the president's budget request is that um, it comes the week after a two-year budget agreement was passed by Congress and signed into law, which has never happened before. So we have a president that is submitting a budget for fiscal year 19, so the upcoming fiscal year, um, that has 
you know, X amount for the UN and Y amount for foreign aid. And yet the key decisions about overall funding for uh, foreign affairs spending were already made when the president signed into law this two-year budget deal. So this request is highly unusual. The timing on this is highly unusual. Um, and, you know, and my guess is Congress will react accordingly. So, yeah, I mean, procedurally, it, it is worth emphasizing that typically the way these things work is that the White House releases its budget request, which is, you know, the start of a debate. Uh, but this right. happened after the debate already ended with that budget deal that, that sort of kept um, the lights going, you know, at least through March 23rd, but presumably for the next two years after that, right? Right. And well, in the budget deal that uh, kept the government operating through March 23rd, also specifically provided for um, what are going to be the funding, the total amount the government spending uh, for um, not only this fiscal year, but next fiscal year, which is um, uh, an unusual arrangement. But normally the way the budget process works is the president around this time of year proposes a budget. That budget is almost always the high watermark. That's the most money that any government program is going to get is in the president's budget. And then Congress, you know, passes its own version of the budget, which is typically less than the president's budget. And then the appropriations committee get to work on both the House and Senate side and write all this into law in terms of uh, a specific spending bill for various foreign affairs accounts. That's the way it normally works. It normally culminates in the November, December timeframe. This year is so different because um, because of this uh, budget agreement that was signed into law and which, you know, contains these spending cap lifts um, for two years. So it basically makes the president's budget uh, a little bit irrelevant. Uh, from a substance point of view, though, the budget request of the White House did put out, you know, obviously after the fact, uh, was seemed to be similar to what it did last year, which was um, include some really sharp reductions in foreign affairs sending. I mean, you said you earlier that usually the budget request is the high water mark, but what seems so different about the Trump administration is that the budgets that they release are like the low water marks. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the president's budget request both last year and this year is 100 percent the low water mark because um, I just the, say when it comes to foreign you, affairs spending, non-military foreign yeah, affairs spending. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely for foreign affairs spending. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, this year, last year, the president proposed a 32 percent cut in foreign affairs spending. This year, the president proposed a 30 percent cut in foreign affairs spending. So these types of cuts are disproportionate and would have a devastating impact um, on America's role in the world. So fortunately last year, Congress stepped in and while we're not done with the appropriations and budgeting process yet, um, we should be by March 23rd um, uh, when the current agreement expires, um, we're not gonna see cuts in the realm of 32% or 30% we're likely to see cuts more in the four to five percent range than we are in the, that type of disproportionate cut. Uh, so, what do we know uh, about how these budget decisions will uh, affect the United Nations and then the you know the coming year or two? Yeah, I think the um, as we think about this year, this year beginning um, 
as we think about the the, uh, the spending bill that we're currently debating for fiscal year 18, um, it seems likely that we will see funding levels for the United Nations in general uh, at roughly current levels. Um, now, there are some exceptions. Uh, UNFPA is not funded under the Trump administration. We have seen. I should say that's the the UN Population Fund that does a lot of reproductive yes, health sorry. around the world. Yeah, right. The uh, UN Population Fund has been defunded by the Trump administration. Uh, the UN Works and Relief Agency, which is basically the UN agency dealing with the Palestinians and their needs in West Bank and Gaza, um, has um, just been uh, received a massive cut in the Trump administration, and it's unclear whether there's future funding coming for that. And of course, the U.S. has uh, withdrawn from. UNESCO, which is the UN cultural organization. So, you know, but as we look at the base budget for the United Nations, uh, you know, that the keeps the, you know, um, the UN operating, we anticipate full funding for the UN itself, uh, it, both in this and next fiscal year. And for UN peacekeeping, we expect funding levels that will get most of the funding that we need uh, to meet U.S. obligations for UN peacekeeping. Um, but not full funding for peacekeeping. I imagine we'll receive, you know, we're supposed to pay roughly 28% of the bills. And under this year's bill and probably next year's bill, we're probably going to pay no more than 25% of the bills. But, you know, I think it's important to remember that, you know, there's a lot of funding that goes to major agencies like the UN refugee agencies and the World Food Program. And we anticipate largely stable funding levels for these key UN agencies on the front lines of our humanitarian response. And, and how do you explain sort of politically like that kind of discrepancy between what the White House is, is asking for for some of these agencies and what Congress ends up appropriating? Is it simply that sort of Congress seems to have like a, a more sophisticated understanding of like how the UN works and the UN's value to UN interests because these you know appropriators have been at their job? for a, like a long time doing this sort of thing? Well, I, you know, I think that the um, investments that a lot of organizations have made in developing bipartisan support on Capitol Hill for the United Nations and for UN programs is paying off. Uh, you know, for years we have developed uh, a DC advocacy presence. We've developed grassroots presence, you know, with the expectation that the you know, strong funding numbers for the UN that were always in President Obama's budget would not necessarily last forever. And so when President Trump proposed these disproportionate cuts to the United Nations, we were ready and we've been activated. And we have many Republican and Democratic champions on the Hill who know the UN, who know the importance of the UN, that know that the UN is a cost-effective way to leverage American power and American influence. They know all this. They've seen the UN in action. Now, do they have criticisms, criticisms of the UN? For sure. But, but they've seen the UN in action. And so as a result, when they look at the president's budget, they're like, yeah, thanks for playing. Now the adults are going to take over. And that's really what's happening is the adults on Capitol Hill are taking over as it relates to the budget on the UN. So can you uh, explain for people who are not as aware as you are about how the UN funds itself, um, both the, the UN budget and peacekeeping budget, and then this voluntary contributions that go to some of the frontline humanitarian agencies? Can you sort of explain a, a little bit about how that works? Yeah, United States funding uh, for core UN programs is 
funded um, by what is called the Contributions to International Organizations account, um, otherwise known as CIO. And basically, that pays for our the dues that we're required to pay to the United Nations as a result of the fact that we're, we signed a treaty that created the United Nations. So we pay 22% of the bills at the United Nations. And so that uh, is a set amount. And there's a, spe- a specific line item in the president's budget request and in Congress when they act to pay that line item. Second element is peacekeeping. Now we're supposed to, we pay a higher percentage for peacekeeping. We're supposed to pay 28% of the bills because we are a member of the security council. And as a result, and we're a veto wielding member of the security council. So you can't create or end a peacekeeping mission without American support. So that's a separate line item in the president's budget and in the appropriations bill. And, uh, and, um, and so as a result, that's, um, um, uh, you know, roughly an FY18 will be $1.7 billion. Um, and so that is, uh, and then the third element of funding is voluntary contributions. And those are the contributions. It's voluntary is really a misnomer because the U S has made these contributions for, decades. But those are the types of contributions we make to UNICEF, which is the Children's Fund, or to the UN Refugee Agency or to the World Food Program that, um, and, you know, there's a large amount of money that flows to those agencies because it's in our interest to flow to those agencies. I mean, you know, we, we need, uh, uh, from a national security and foreign policy perspective, to try to meet the needs of refugees as well as those who are in very challenging humanitarian situations. So, you know, there's a lot of different flows of money that go into the UN's important programs, but, you know, it's less than 0.5% of the U.S. federal budget. So, you know, at the end, it's actually 0.2% of the U.S. federal budget. So, um, it's a yeah. good investment for American taxpayers. Yeah, I mean, that, that's also kind of what boggles my mind a little bit is that the UN is often seen politically as a place where the US can sort of trim savings, yet the savings we're talking about are sort of from a budgetary perspective, minuscule, like, you know, we're talking about a few billion dollars uh, that the US pays into the UN, not like tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. And I, I was just kind of doing some back of the envelope math. And it appears that the total budget, that's that's what everyone pays into the both the UN regular budget and peacekeeping is something like $12 billion, which is roughly the equivalent of the budget of like the Commerce Department. Um, and that's yeah. that's like a, a total. It just sort of always boggles my mind politically how vulnerable it seems that the UN can be at times. Well, the the UN is vulnerable at times, and it's a it's a minor portion. You know, as I said, it's 0.2 percent of the U.S. federal budget. So you can't balance the U.S. federal budget off the backs of the United on the back of the United Nations. That said, the UN, like all major institutions, needs to tighten its belt. I mean, this is a, a new era where UN and other international organizations and governments all need to tighten their belts and make sure that they're as efficient as possible. So. You know, just because it's a bargain to work through the United Nations doesn't mean that it couldn't be more of a bargain. And so as we think about uh, the Secretary General's three different reform tracks, management, peace and security, and development, that, you know, cost savings should be part of those reform tracks to make sure that it's even slimmer and meaner. And then he does have like a, a pretty good reputation from his time as the head of the UN Refugee Agency as someone who can actually trim budgets pretty uh, effectively while also maintaining a pretty close alliance with major donors and, and recipients. 
Well, uh, you know, I, there's, um, the fact that he was head of the UN Refugee Agency for a decade and moved forward and implemented reforms that made the organization more effective and efficient, better able to meet its mandate and reduce costs, was significant and real. So he is a reformer, and not just in terms of talk, in terms of his action. Um, and so I think this is a positive development that we have a secretary general that's so committed to reform. And we have a real partnership between Nikki Haley and the secretary general on reform uh, that is real. And they talk often and they work constructively on this reform agenda. And that's very important. So you mentioned earlier this sort of value proposition that the U.S., uh, that the United Nations provides to the U.S. And I was interested to get your take on this new report that came across my transom that uh, I'm sure you've seen from the Government Accountability Office that um, basically sort of ran the numbers on a, a potential UN peace, on a UN peacekeeping operation versus a potential U.S. military deployment and, and, um, you know, came up with some pretty interesting results. Could you just uh, explain that report? report, where it came from, and, and what it found? Yeah, the the GAO is a, a U.S. government agency that does, uh, you know, investigations on cost-effectiveness issues and budgetary issues. So it has a, it's sort of the gold star, um, you know, gold star uh, uh, agency that works on documenting how to save money for the U.S. government. And they came to the conclusion that uh, it is eight times cheaper uh, for the United States to support a U.N. peacekeeping mission in a particular country than for the U.S. to deploy its own troops to accomplish the same task. That's a big deal, right? In the sense that as we look as policymakers, whether they're in executive branch or on the Hill, look at a particular unstable region or country in the future, they need to know that from a cost-effectiveness point of view, working through UN peacekeeping um, is a real bargain. And it's, in fact, eight times cheaper to work through the United Nations than for the U.S. to go it alone. Um, it's interesting. There was a similar GAO study done almost a decade ago that came to the exact same conclusions. So we feel that there's a nice... Uh, you know, uh, lengthy nature of the look at UN peacekeeping, and uh, it demonstrates that um, peacekeeping is a bargain. Um, it doesn't mean that uh, sometimes it's more effective for the U.S. to deploy its own troops. Um, you know, if there's going to be extensive combat and uh, a more uh, tip of the spear approach, then Sometimes it's more effective for the United States to deploy its own troops. But if the U.S. is interested in working with other countries, then peacekeeping is the way to do it. And, and what did that GAO report find in terms of how these savings were, were achieved? Yeah, the U.N. peacekeeping, there's two ways. The, the, the base conclusion is U.N. peacekeeping does the same job that American soldiers would do, except it costs half, half the cost. The reason why it's half the cost is because of reduced uh, salaries paid to troops. Most of the UN peacekeepers come from the global south where they're paid significantly less. The, the footprint of equipment that's deployed with these troops is significantly less. The cost of transporting equipment and troops into the country and region is less. And so when you add all of the, the between the salaries and the expenses of deployment and maintaining them in terms of warehouses and other types of core elements that soldiers and um, troop movements need, it's half the cost. Now, the U.S. pays 
uh, only roughly 25% of the bills. And so that's how we get to the eight times cheaper because the total mission is half the cost, but then the U.S. is only paying one quarter of the total bills. So that's why it's eight times cheaper. Um, I, I guess looking forward, so so this this piece, this this report establishes, you know, the the value, the bargain that UN peacekeeping is, and you know, I I'll post a link to it because it's a it's a pretty easy read and it kind of lays out um in in pretty good details of where the cost savings are and and how UN funding and UN peacekeeping operates. But sort of looking looking forward, looking in, into the new year, um, how well is UN peacekeeping positioned to carry out the mandate, their tasks that they've been asked to by the United States government and other members of, of the Security Council, um, mainly in, in terms of their funding? Like, is UN peacekeeping funding there and, and up to the task and commensurate with the, um, the, the challenges and the mandates that they have to fulfill? Well, I'm an optimistic person, so I'm a glass uh, half full approach towards this, which is that ultimately, if you look at the mission, the largest missions, which are Mali, Central African Republic, still Darfur, uh, Congo, um, that in uh, South Sudan, these missions are, um, you know, the troops are being paid. Uh, there's all these missions have over 10,000 deployed soldiers. Uh, they have, uh, you know, several thousand civilian employees who are trying to promote peace and reconciliation and get these governments up, get these countries up and running again. And all of these missions are also protecting civilians or doing their best to protect civilians. So work is getting done as a result of the deployment of these peacekeeping missions and the funding that they receive in part from U.S. taxpayers. So that's the good news. The challenging news is that, that you know, these are very large countries and very complex environments. And so as a result, they can't live up to the high expectations uh, that are given to them by the Security Council in terms of their mandate each and every day. So, you know, when you're, I was in uh, Central African Republic uh, last year, I was in Democratic Republic of Congo the previous year. And in both cases, you know, the peacekeepers are protecting civilians but they're very large countries with very little infrastructure. So as a result, there are, there are millions of civilians in both countries that need protection that don't have it or need assistance that aren't getting it because, you know, there aren't enough soldiers to go around. So um, it's a balancing act. The, the, the United Nations, in consultation with UN member states, tries to provide enough resources to these missions to do their jobs effectively, but frankly, they could always use more. Well, but that also means that we have to make the hard choices sometimes, that if a mission is, if its time has come, then it, we have to close it so we can move the mission um, resources elsewhere. So, uh, you know, one thing I get from speaking with people at the UN is, is again, like how overstretched a lot of these more complex missions are, say, say the, the DR Congo. Um, but yet, uh, from what we, we discussed earlier, it seems that there might be at least some modest or moderate cuts coming to some of these missions. I mean, can they handle just, you know, a two, three, four percent cut in, in their budgets? I think the reality is that when you cut the budgets for these missions, you're going to have to cut the number of things that you're asking these missions to do. And, and I think that's the process that I know the uh, Nikki Haley uh, views as her responsibility when these missions come before the Security Council is take a careful look at all the things that the missions are supposed to do and cut those that are viewed as 
of a lesser priority so that you can concentrate what limited resources you have on the most important task, which usually relate to protecting civilians and promoting reconciliation and and political progress. And so that means that lesser priorities are going to get cut. And I think that that's that's the right way to do it, which is don't ask peacekeeping missions to do too much for what the resources that they are being given, right-sized resources with mandate. And I do think that that is uh, an approach that both the Secretary General and Nikki Haley have when they look at these missions. So, so we've been talking about how the U.S. funds uh, peacekeeping, which is important because it's you know the, the single largest funder. But are there any other potential new funders, or do you expect any other countries to step up in in more meaningful ways as the United States seeks to trim its its own budget a a little bit? Like, are there other countries on the horizon that you expect to pick up a little bit more of the tab? For sure. Countries are going to have to step up, and they're going to have to step up in 2018, because... Which countries, do you um, think? uh, Well, I think countries like China and Russia and those in in the Middle East including Saudi Arabia, uh, and potentially some middle-income countries like uh, Brazil are going to have to step up and provide more, and potentially members of the Security Council themselves, uh, other than the United States, will have to pick up more because the U.S. is committed to getting our peacekeeping assessment rate down to 25% from 28%, which means somebody else is going to have to pay that, that, that differential. And so there's a lot of diplomatic work that needs to happen between now and December when that decision is going to be made to make sure that uh, other countries are convinced to pay an increased share of the bills. The irony is, you know, when you pay less, you have less influence. So it's a, it's a little bit of a shame that we're having to go through the process of getting our bills down our percentage down because we'll have less influence. All right. Well, Peter, thank you so much. This was, this was helpful as, as you know, we're in the middle of budget season. So it's always good to, uh, to get some grounding here about how these kind of decisions in Washington will affect far off places around the world. Well, it's my pleasure. And there's a lot of important work uh, that's getting done by the United Nations on a day in by day, day in and day out basis. And it's, you know, the working through the funding issues um, is vitally important to what the UN does and the future of our country in, in terms of making sure that our foreign policy and national interests are being met. And so um, there's a good partnership there. All right. And, uh, I appreciate you having me. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Peter. And yeah, well, it's always interesting to see where this budget uh, shakes out. We are, as I said, in the middle of budget season. So I found this to be a, a timely and a helpful episode. Again, thank you to everyone who is leaving reviews. And also, if you want to get in touch with me, you can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I do love hearing from you. Please do feel free to send me your suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. I I read all your emails and I I value them. Thank you. See you later. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.